we've established how I'm doing. I think the more important question is, how are you doing? Well, uh, thank you for asking, Luke. Uh, I was feeling a little down this week, but now I now I have uh, a Tony Lung action figure. Uh, the the <laughs> listeners obviously can't see this, but I'm showing Luke through the Zoom window my action figure of Tony Lung playing whatever character he plays in the new Marvel film, Shang-Chi. And, you know, what? what's incredible about this action figure is it really looks like Tony Lung, the star of Chunking Express and In the Mood for Love. So, like, if you just look at his face, it's you're looking at Chow Wo Man again, the protagonist of 2046, but, but except he's got a Marvel suit on. I didn't realize Tony Lung, the, the Tom Hanks of Hong Kong, as you once described him to me, uh, I didn't realize he was in a Marvel film. Is that his first... That can't be his first Hollywood film. It's his film. first Hollywood film, yes. God, it's it's wild to think about how famous Tony Lung is and how many incredible projects he's been involved with, and yet how few people in the West, like, probably... Like, he should be a household name, and he definitely isn't. Well, until now. <laughs> I, I was reading a... I think it was in... It might have been in GQ, or it might have been in Esquire. I think it was Esquire, actually, a profile of Tony Lung, and it was like... You know, the Robert De Niro of Asia tries his hand at Hollywood. And I just kind of liked the framing of that. It's like, oh, yeah, he, after, after making such films as Flowers from right. Shanghai and In the Mood <laughs> for Love. After starring in Chunking Express. Yeah. He's going to try his hand at uh, at a Marvel movie and see if he can do it. <laughs> you know, not to knock. Yeah, I'm sure Tony Lung will manage. Not Not to knock your description, but it is so annoying that, like, that's the framing. It's like. Tony Lung doesn't need to, you know, he's not the Robert De Niro of Hong Kong. He's the Tony Lung of Hong <laughs> exactly. Kong. Exactly. Like, he's an institution. Yeah. And I feel like the attitude towards it should be a little bit more like, okay, Tony Lung, after making 15 masterpieces, has decided to make some money and uh, good on him, as opposed to <laughs> finally. He's 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 cracked into real acting, <laughs> which is appearing in Marvel movies that are... Uh, entirely made on a green screen and somehow cost half a billion dollars. <laughs> well, folks, welcome to Mike Lenos. I am Will Sloan here, as per usual, with Luke Savage. Welcome back, everyone. And, uh, folks, uh, I just want to say there were many people who sent well wishes to me during my recent personal tragedy, and uh, I appreciate that very greatly. It was very heartening, very heartwarming feels nice to feel so much love and support so just an earnest uh note of thanks for that also thanks to luke lebrun who recorded some content with my good buddy luke savage here in my absence yeah i wanted to have him on uh, for a long time and uh it seemed like a good opportunity we are still in the thick of this federal election uh here in canada i had a piece about it in the new statesman this week trying to explain to british readers why uh the election seems to have backfired on Justin Trudeau, which we've talked about on the show last month. Um, you know, this kind of snap election gamble two years early, which uh, immediately saw the liberals kind of plummet in the polls and the Tories go up and the NDP boasts some uh, pretty strong numbers as well. Now, honestly, I don't know what to make of this election. I mean, to British readers, you know, the Theresa May example definitely echoes somewhat. So that was kind of the parallel that I drew Theresa May in 2017, of course, called an election facing a very divided opposition party, the Labour Party, did not look like it was in any shape to fight, uh, let alone kind of win an election. You know, May had a weak majority 
Uh, she wanted to take a big majority into the Brexit negotiations. Um, so she called this early election. It occurred to me actually recently while I was writing this piece that if Theresa May had called, uh, if, if she called an election at kind of the, the designated time, the election would have been last year which is just so weird. Such a strange alternative history. I'm not sure what it had been, but uh, that occurred to me when I was writing the piece. Anyway, I'm still confident in what I told readers of The New Statesman that Trudeau's uh, gamble seems to have backfired. I have a hard time imagining the Liberals gaining any seats, and I I think it's very likely they'll lose some. In terms of what the outcome of the election is going to be, I just, I have no sense of it anymore. The polls are all over the place, which are kind of the only thing we have to go on. Uh, depending on where you look, uh, the NDP is going to have its you know second best result in the popular vote ever, or it's going to have a very kind of average result and maybe gain a few seats. Uh, there's one polling company, Ecos, that has the far right PPC, the People's Party, uh, surging to 11% in the most recent poll, which is... Uh, you know, a very disturbing development if it's true. Other pollsters have them much, much lower. Later tonight, there will be an uh, the, f- the first and only English language debate. There have been two French language debates, and that could affect things that has been known to happen in the past in Canada. I don't know. But I've been very frustrated with media coverage during the election, particularly the way the Tory campaign has been covered. It's remarkable how center-right parties can just, I mean, I think they're catching on that if you sprinkle a bunch of kind of pro-worker rhetoric into your platform, you can quite literally rebrand. I mean, in the case of the Aaron O'Toole conservative campaign, you know, stuff that's basically been written by like, lobbyists for uber you can brand it as like protections for gig workers and you can have pundits take that up and run with it um and write articles that are like the conservative platform is it communism you know (laughs) yeah i saw our buddy gord perks observe on twitter that you can see this hunger this appetite among people who write about politics for a living to manufacture some sort of drama or manufacture some some unexpected development where there really isn't one right there's there's something that happens elections. And actually, this is something that I think the film we watched a few weeks ago, History on the Run, about the 1979 federal election Canada, I think that film captures this very well. And a few people who appear in the film and and basically are pundits are kind of grappling with this. You know, the, the fact that elections end up taking on, they end up, this master narrative sort of seems to develop. And quite often it has to do with just you know, what seems dynamic and compelling rather than anything that's actually rooted or founded in the facts on the ground. You know, the mass media is so influential in terms, I mean, it's really the only thing we have in many cases for something like a national election. So these narratives can harden very easily. And even if they're not, you know, quote unquote, real to begin with, they can they can become real because, you know, they've been taken on board in the press. This, I think, is one of the major reasons why politics today often have this kind of deeply inauthentic and hyper real character you know it's it's really just the the dom- the dominance of meta narrative and it can have really disastrous consequences you know the fact that the tory campaign has been talked about in the press as this like really dynamic and novel thing this thing that's occupying this you know new ideological territory and all this kind of stuff and you know it's not really true at all but it it sounds good it sounds compelling and an election in an election that 
nobody wanted and was not called for any reason other than just pure partisan hubris and, you know, the patrician entitlement of the Prime Minister of Canada. It's like, you got to fill the void with something. And that's a hell of a, that's a hell of a story. It sounds pretty damn good. The other thing that's been happening is that liberal events have been, you know, Trudeau's events have been disrupted a lot by anti-vaxxers, you know, anti-mask, anti-lockdown, anti-vaccine passport people. There was some gravel thrown at him recently at one of these. And apart from stating the obvious about this, which is, you know, obviously that it's it's not good. It really does strike me as ironic that the people who hate Justin Trudeau the most and are most opposed to his COVID policies have probably given the liberal campaign the first good news since they called the stupid election. If anything uh, might change the channel and boost liberal fortunes after, you know, the narrative for three weeks has been liberals down, O'Toole and the Tories are up, the other parties have momentum or gaining momentum and the liberals are losing it. It's the idea that Justin Trudeau is a besieged underdog who's heroically staring down, you know, the far right or whatever. And after this gravel story happened, you know, sure enough, I saw on National Newswatch, which is a website that curates, you know, political headlines from across Canada, you know, there was a headline that was like basically the framing was, I don't remember the exact wording but the framing was you know like we will not be intimidated PM stands defiant in the face <laughs> of you know <laughs> so if that becomes kind of a major fulcrum of the election in the final 10 days or so it's going to benefit the liberals a lot uh, but as I said I don't know what to make of this election anymore and the business of predicting elections in general just feels um really futile after this in 2020 so maybe we should all try to predict elections less Take Well, before we get to the movie, I'll just say that I've fallen behind on a lot of discourse cycles this past week, but uh, I am at my parents' house, and I've had access to their TV, so, you know, uh, I've been seeing a lot of the kind of, like, U.S. news shows. I saw some of the Sunday morning shows, saw a lot of CNN, PBS NewsHour, and the one discourse cycle that I'm very aware of is that it's going to be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. This is everywhere. This is unavoidable. Every news program has some version of, you know, uh, uh, we all remember where we were on that day, and then they'll interview somebody who was there at the time, and then they'll interview some school kids, some school kids who are learning about it in their classroom, and they ask the school kids, you know, uh, what do they think of all this? And they say, well, it's it's really important that you should remember this. It's very important that, that this never be forgotten. I absolutely cannot stand this. It is so exhausting to have wall-to-wall nonstop 9-11 coverage, especially in the context of the recent U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, which is the the kind of, um, I don't know what the term I'm looking for is, the, the undercurrent of all this, the subtext, the structuring absence of all the coverage. I watched This Week with George Stephanopoulos this week, a beautiful show. <laughs> Uh, did you did you know that the panel now has Chris Christie and Rahm Emanuel on it? So you know you can get some of their. Wait, wait, you're wisdom. telling me George Stephanopoulos has a permanent panel, and the pundits are they are or they include Chris Christie and Rahm Emanuel? Uh, yeah, I mean it used to have Donna Brazil on until her reputation took a bit of a hit. Uh, it used to have. Oh, fuck. What's the name of that uh, that conservative pundit who was anti-Trump, who was kind of like like the serious guy? Oh, George Will. 
George Will used right. to be on it. Maybe he still is. I don't know. But Chris Christie and Rahm Emanuel are, are the current big headliners. So you get the left and the right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, from Rahm Emanuel to George Will. <laughs> the, ra- the range of acceptable opinion in many mainstream places since 2016. So George Stephanopoulos showed us a preview of uh, whatever network he's on, uh, this like six-part 9-11 documentary that, that they're doing, or maybe it's an Afghanistan documentary. And it, the, the clip that he showed opens with some some, you know, Bush administration lackey looking at the fall of Afghanistan on a tablet and just going, I can't, it's it, it's the exact mirror image of what happened 20 years ago. Well, if it's met, if it's meta commentary, then I agree, because the, <laughs> yeah, the oh, image it, of the, the image of some like right wing dogmatist looking into an electronic device that's showing images from halfway across the world and having these kind of, you know, grand geopolitical fantasies like appear in their brain while being completely disconnected from all the terror and violence that's being inflicted around the world as a result of them. That sounds pretty on point to me. Yeah, I assure you it was not meta commentary. (laughs) It's great that every single one of these news reports uh, has somebody, you know, somebody gravely pronouncing the seriousness of remembering 9-11 and remembering the lessons of 9-11. But nobody ever says what the lessons actually are. It just ends with remembering the the lessons. Uh, I mean, I guess the implication is that we should have fought harder in Afghanistan. That's the implied message. But they but they don't actually say that. They just say, you've got to remember the lessons, and then they just kind of leave it at that. And then you can, you know, much like the film that we watched today, you can bring your own interpretation to it. There's a certain type of memorialization that seems in a grand tradition of these kind of, I think a very American tradition of these uh, memorializations often of, of wars that have this kind of epochal weight to them or the insinuation of epochal weight, but then as you say, no actual kind of content or substance. What what are the lessons? And I think it's impossible for many of the people on, on cable news, especially who ask that question, uh, to answer it. Because to answer it, you ultimately have to indict 20 years, two straight decades of bipartisan foreign policy that had absolutely disastrous consequences. I mean, a human cost that is unspeakable. I was, uh, I've been doing some work on this myself the past few weeks, and I was drawn to a report from the Institute for Policy Studies on the, the cost of militarization since 9-11 in the United States, uh, which of course has been a very bipartisan effort. And so the militarization since 9-11 during the war on terror has, according to one estimate, it's caused, you know, nearly a million deaths worldwide and 37 million people around the world displaced by the war on terror, basically, and by American militarism since 9-11. And the authors of the report use the word militarization because they're referring to a process that is much larger and much more insidious, ultimately, than just direct spending on the military. Their top line figure was $21 trillion. But that's not $21 trillion spent directly on the military since 9-11. It's on all kinds of things that came out of 9-11. Because don't forget, there was all this new spending on the Department of Homeland Security. They created ICE uh, after 9-11. There was all this stuff around border security. If you go through line items in their report, they're finding stuff, you know, at all the obvious places, the Department of Defense, the CIA, but also the National Science Foundation, the Marine Administration, lots of things that really don't or shouldn't have anything to do with the military or with militarization. And, you know, it's often observed that America or, you know, official America anyway, is very bad at recognizing 
the human cost of its, you know, interventions abroad. And I certainly think that's true. There's not, you know, wh where have you seen those figures that I just gave? Uh, nearly a million people dead, 37 million around the world displaced. Where would you ever see those in the mainstream media? Those those figures, by the way, are courtesy of the Brown University Costs of War Project, which is worth looking at. But having said that, it's striking to me that official America is unable to even interrogate the consequences of the war on terror at home, which when $21 trillion have been spent are quite considerable. You know, it's not that the United States wasn't a very militarized society before 9-11, but the war on terror has made it a more militarized society than it's ever been. Military spending as a result, or spending on the Pentagon, is higher than it was at the zenith of the Cold War, higher than it was in Vietnam or Korea or the first Gulf War, and uh, it ultimately makes up about half of uh, the discretionary federal budget in a single year. I mean, and that has changed American society tremendously, and you won't hear that discussed either. Anyway, I suspect as much of this memorialization kind of happens over the next few weeks, there are going to be a lot of variations of the question, what lessons have been learned since September 11th, 2001? And there's going to be a silence that is uh, directly proportional to the scale of that question. I'm going to die. Well, on this episode, we watched Uncle Boon Me Who Can Recall His Past Lives by the great Thai filmmaker Apichitpong Wirasathakul, who I will henceforth refer to as Apichitpong. Uh, it is probably his best-known movie, having won the Palme d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival in 2010. The jury president that year, by the way, was one Mr. Tim Burton, who said that the film was like a beautiful, strange dream, and I agree with him. <laughs> I thought you were going to say Tim Allen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't. I don't think Tim Allen would. Well, you know what? Tim Allen could surprise me. Maybe he would enjoy this film. Uh, <laughs> both a pitch at pong and Tim Allen deal with kind of the the elementals of human life, don't they? You know, the the, the fundamentals. The, the the yeah, they both deal with our primal nature. <laughs> so I wanted to talk about this film first because I was reminded of it while watching Andre Tarkovsky's Ivan's Childhood for the podcast a few weeks ago. Certain of the ideas that Apichatpong raises in this film and his other films, in terms of both their style and their politics, I think seem like they could be put in conversation with Tarkovsky a little bit. Um, but also, you know, without dwelling too much on personal matters, I will say that I've had a lot of cause lately to think about such concepts as death and memory. And I found myself drawn to Apichatpong and his films for, I guess, spiritual nourishment, for want of a better phrase. I increasingly think that this film, Uncle Boon Me, is one of my favorite films. I think there's something very deeply generous and loving about his style and his worldview. And this film has a bit of a reputation of being, you know, one of the key art films of this century, but also like an, an intimidating art film. I think on first blush, it can seem a little challenging. But I also think, as I say, there's something so generous about his style. I think he really invites a collaborative relationship with the audience. And he has things that he wants to say, but there's a lot that you can bring to it, too. And there's a lot there's great democracy in how you interpret the images in this film. You can if you want, you can laugh at them because sometimes they're 
are funny. And I think that can be overlooked. Uh, Luke, you I don't think you'd seen this film. What What's your initial reaction to it? Well, yes, this is my first viewing of it. This is one you recommended. And it, it seemed like you just felt that this was the week to do it. And I agree. I would say for the first maybe 25 minutes, I struggled a bit because I was very much trying to intellectualize and kind of taxonomize the images I was seeing. And at a certain point, I would say I surrendered to the movie. I didn't so much watch it as experience it. I mean, it sounds a bit corny, but I really did kind of uh, let it wash over me. Mm-hmm. I experienced it on the level of kind of, uh, or primarily anyway, on the level of the sensations it was producing, which mm-hmm. were, I think, very kind of meditative I also uh, was very preoccupied with it on kind of an aesthetic level. The fact that there are scenes that wildly contrast in how they look and feel. There are scenes in nature that are among the most beautiful I've ever seen in a in a film. Uh, and then there are very pedestrian kind of shots, you know, at this farm where where some of the film happens. And right at the end, uh, in many ways, the the kind of final sequence is. Uh, strangely underwhelming because it happens in a really kind of quotidian uh, setting first in a hotel room very bland hotel room and then in a kind of a you know small restaurant or pub or something where there's pop music playing uh, a genuinely strange and uh, and wonderful film this although i'm not sure i have anything particularly intelligent to say about it well uh i i have some points to make and I'm, I'm sure we can jump off from there we'll get into the plot but first i just want to provide a little bit of context for his career it's worth noting i think that his career has coincided with a period of very painful upheaval in thailand the country has experienced two separate military coups in the last 20 years, one of them in 2006 and another in 2014. The latter resulted in a military junta that lasts to this day, and it has led to the restriction of human rights. I'm by no means an expert in Thai politics, so please forgive me any oversimplification. I also know that throughout his career, Apichitpong has had to contend with government censorship For example, he has a film called Syndromes in a Century that came out in 2006, which cannot be seen uncut in Thailand because it features such images as a monk playing a guitar, uh, also two doctors kissing in a hospital. Such behavior is not acceptable in a medical facility. It's interesting because despite the controversies around uh, his work, this was, I believe, Thailand's official selection uh, in 2010 at Cannes. Yes, it was, where it won the Palme d'Or. So, I mean, I'm sure the Thai government and Apichitpong have had a, a mutually complicated relationship. The the film also, the, the Thai Ministry of Culture was involved. Uh, that was in the credits. I know that he has felt increasingly unwelcome in Thailand. In fact, he has a new film currently playing at the Toronto Film Festival called Memoria, which is an international co-production that stars Tilda Swinton. He's left the country, and in the films that he made leading up to his departure, he responded obliquely in the films to encroaching authoritarianism, and I I could bring up some examples of that later. But we'll start with the plot. Uh, The title character, Boon Me, is a man in late middle age. He's traveled to a small hospice in an isolated rural area of Thailand to be treated for an illness. He's there with some members of his family, his nephew and his sister-in-law, Uh, And it's clear that he's in his last days. He believes that his illness is a result of karma. At one point, a throwaway line that's actually quite easy to miss, he mentions his past military service. He says, I killed too many communists. One evening, the three of them, 
uh, Boonmi and his two family members are having dinner on the porch, and they are unexpectedly joined by Boonmi's dead wife, who materializes at the table out of thin air. And I love the way that he depicts this, because this scene unfolds in this very simple, static, full shot. Nothing in the sound and editing to direct your attention to the fact that a supernatural event is happening. It's very slow and can catch you by surprise that that this has taken place. And the characters are briefly surprised to see her, but the temperature of the film doesn't rise in this moment. And then she, his dead wife, is then joined by their son, their adult son who has disappeared some years ago, presumed dead, but he reappears in the form of a gorilla man played by a man in a suit that looks kind of like Chewbacca. <laughs> and and there are a number of these gorilla men who haunt the forests outside the hospice. Well, we see one right at the beginning where there's this, you know, kind of opening sequence of the film. It's just the camera following a, a water buffalo that's initially tied to a tree. It breaks free of the tree and goes into the woods where it kind of is met by a man and they walk off together. And then elsewhere in the woods, kind of looking at them, uh, we just see this silhouetted figure Figure with uh, you know two piercing red eyes that are coming through the darkness, and so Boonmi's son is either this figure or uh, or this kind of figure. It's not really clear which. Now this scene introduces some of the core philosophical and spiritual ideas of the film. Life and death in the film are not a strict binary. Neither is human being an animal or past and present. And the slow pace of the film, the measured tone of the film, the deadpan acting of the film keep all of these silos from separating. And in the film's midsection, we step away for a time from the hospice, and we meet a princess who lives elsewhere in the forest. She looks like she comes from the past, but, you know, a Pitchapong films her as if she's living in the here and now. And this leads to one of the more memorable scenes of the film, uh, an encounter between her and a talking catfish. Uh, They have sex in a lake. And it's difficult to describe the effect of this, except to say that it's oddly wholesome. You know, it, it doesn't, it doesn't like, I guess it's, I guess it's funny, but it actually feels kind of erotic when you see it, but also natural and beautiful. I, I, there's no way, there's no way to convey that though, without showing you the scene. Well, it's very, it's very much like in the scene you described before, where there's something that's happening that's supernatural, but because the film doesn't dial up the temperature at all, uh, because there's no kind of accompanying you know, music or anything to tell you how to feel, the aura of the whole thing ends up being rather peaceful and, and natural. And the atmosphere of the film is so rich. It has this very dense soundscape of the forest, and Apichitpong is very attuned to you know the, the sound of the lapping water and just the many beautiful subdued colors in all of his vistas. Uh, eventually, we find ourselves back at the hospice where Boonmi's wife, his dead wife, wife has stuck around and he asks her to show him the afterlife and this leads to a very beautiful and very peaceful and overwhelmingly atmospheric scene where the family walks together through the forest and into a cave and the cave is depicted as a sort of womb-like place a place where like all life begins and dies well Boonmi has a really memorable line in that scene he says the cave is like a womb you know i was born here i can't remember if i was a human or an animal but i know i was born here 
And it's very, like everything else in the film, very cryptic and it doesn't really, it doesn't fit anywhere exactly. There's no, I don't think there's a kind of mystery to deconstruct here, um, but it's a very memorable and evocative uh, line nonetheless. So much of what moves me about the film is its depiction of life and death. I mean, uh, based on my own experiences with death, I think he's on to something the way that he depicts death as not something that begins when the heartbeat stops and not something that ends there either. There's a fade out process and then a fade in process after that's very... Uh, you know, th- th- that's very long. And there's also a career-long preoccupation in his films of the past always being present. In the film that he made after this, Cemetery of Splendor, it also takes place at a hospice which exists on land that apparently once housed a great imperial palace. And it's a hospice that takes care of soldiers who have fallen victim to this strange sleep paralysis. And when they wake up, they report that in their dreams, they've all been waging this war that's happening on this land right here in all this parallel battlefield. Now, if you want to do a political reading of his films in the context of the current zeitgeist in Thailand, his thesis sort of seems to be all things must pass and also nothing passes. No matter how much you steamroll the past, it's still there and it still accumulates. And in fact, it's still there and you can still see it there if you look at it with just the right perspective. And I think that idea finds a parallel in his visual style where sometimes his films can look so prosaic, but he tells you to look for the beauty in these long, unbroken shots. He's saying the beauty is in here. If you look for it, if you use your imagination to find it. What you're describing uh, obviously has a close relationship to Buddhist ideas. And uh, apparently part of the inspiration for the film was a a book called A Man Who Can Recall His Past Lives. It was published during the 1980s. There was a man uh, whose name was Bunmi who claimed to the abbot of a Buddhist temple that when he meditated, uh, he could remember past lives. Uh, and the abbot ended up writing a book about Bunmi. So this was one of the inspirations for the film, which I think was part of a sort of uh, multi-part art project. or was kind of the culmination of a multi-part art project. There are two scenes towards the end of the movie that I want to describe, both of which I think could be read politically and neither of which I have a definitive explanation for, and uh, perhaps there is no definitive explanation for them. Uh, One of them is Boon Me in the cave, in this womb-like cave just before he dies, and he describes a dream that he had the previous night. And when he's describing the dream, we see ten still images that are very strange, strike a very odd note compared to everything we've seen before. They feature a man in a gorilla suit, much like the one that we've seen throughout the film, And he is posing with, on the one hand, a group of men in military fatigues, as well as a group of young people, teenagers. And in some of these images, this monkey man is tied up and he's being led around. Images that, you know, would make a Western viewer think of Abu Ghraib, for instance. In other images, he's just kind of hanging out with everyone and looks like he's having a good time. And in his narration, Boonmi says, Last night I dreamed of a future. I arrived there in a sort of time machine. The future city was ruled by an authority able to make anybody disappear. When they found past people, they shone a light at them. The light projected images of them onto the screen, from the past until their arrival in the future. Once those images appeared, these past people disappeared. I was afraid of being captured by the authorities because I had many friends in this future. 
I ran away, but wherever I ran, they still found me. They asked me if I knew this road or that road. I told them I didn't know, and then I disappeared. The images of people, you know, wearing the military fatigues and guiding this gorilla man around, again, I don't have a clear explanation for it. I mean, given the title of the film, you can wonder how much of what we've seen are Boon Mi's past lives or his possible lives, or if these pictures represent different possibilities for the world in which Boon Mi lives. Boonmi talks about karma. I mean, it's interesting that this monkey man who looks so much like his son is sometimes being led around on a leash, perhaps like what he would have once done to somebody as a military man fighting the communists earlier in his life. It's interesting, too, that what he describes in his dream sounds a lot like the moving image, sounds a lot like a Pitchapong's chosen art form. Maybe it would be a stretch to say that a pidget bong is trying to position art making as some kind of uh, either form of resistance or form of memorialization. I just don't know, frankly. Uh, But, you know, the images and the narration are very provocative in this context. Well, apparently he's resisted, you know, attempts to kind of interrogate the film on a granular level. Reading from a uh, a Guardian piece that came out in conjunction with the film, he is a delicate, softly spoken man. Sometimes you don't need to understand everything to appreciate a certain beauty, and I think the film operates in the same way. It's like tapping into someone's mind. The thinking pattern is quite random, jumping here and there like a monkey. He possesses an aura of gentle, zen-like calm that's all of a piece his films. Far from being a showy, cryptic mind-melter, Uncle Boonmi is a hypnotic, sensual, rapturous dream of a movie. It doesn't so much confront Western notions of reality as casually disregard them. Boundaries dissolve between the living and the dead, the past and the present, man and nature, the strange and the everyday. Before you know it, it becomes perfectly natural to see Uncle Boonmi chatting on the veranda with the ghost of his wife and their long-lost son, who turns up looking like Chewbacca with glowing red eyes. There you go, Chewbacca. <laughs> the result of having mated with a monkey spirit. Why did you grow your hair so long? His translucent mother asks him matter-of-factly. Where Rasathekul prefers not to explain anything about the film. This is open cinema, he said. I have my own take, but sometimes that spoils the audience's imagination. I can say in short, it's a movie about a dying man. It talks about death and at the same time life and dreams, and also the memory of how I grew up in this landscape. Elsewhere, I saw this movie uh, described as not so much as a film, but as a floating world. And I uh, I really liked that description. This doesn't really fit in anywhere. But the two things that stuck out most to me were the uh, in the cave scene, uh, the shot where the cave has become so darkened that all you can see are bits of light reflecting on the walls and the ceiling. And it looks exactly like a starscape. One of the most beautiful shots I think I've ever seen in the film. Also that strange image of the little fish in the in the stream as they're going through the cave. Very, very striking. And the, the other thing that uh, really struck me was during this oddly prosaic uh, conversation that occurs near the beginning of the film, when Boon Mi is being visited first by his wife and then by his long-lost son, the guests at the table and Boonmi himself are, are asking the departed wife who's been gone some 19 years if she's in heaven. And she doesn't say no, which I really liked. She just says something to the effect of, you know, there's nothing in heaven. And they say, uh, well, where are you? And she replies, ghosts aren't attached to places. They're attached to people. <laughs> Which which is a line I don't think I even remembered to write down, uh, and yet I remembered it verbatim because it was so memorable. 
it's an interesting conception of the afterlife that this movie has where the dead are sort of all around us their legacies are all around us they're they're constantly shifting meaning all around us you know when his son returns in the form of this kind of monkey man it sort of feels like the way that one's memory of somebody gets warped the further and further away you get from them the son you know when he's asked questions about himself doesn't really even know who he is anymore he doesn't remember how he got here but this is the form that he now takes and you're right that it recalls Ivan's childhood which we talked about uh, a few episodes ago because the thesis of that movie I mean you could read it very superficially is it's a movie about the lost innocence of a young boy in the Soviet Union uh, you know whose innocence is is, is robbed by the uh, the Nazi invasion but actually the thesis of the film is that both the scenes of brutality that have colored Ivan's life and the kind of lost innocence of his childhood are both a part of him in the present mm-hmm. they form a symbiotic relationship the present is always in a constant dialogue with the past, and there's not a there's not a binary between them. Exactly, yes. Even though the sinews of that uh, in Tarkovsky, I think, drawing from a different philosophical tradition than the kind of Buddhist one that this film is engaged with, I think ultimately they really are in conversation with uh, one another and are in many ways very similar. Uh, this movie actually reminded me of two of my favorite films, which I'd love to discuss on the podcast in the future. Uh, one being the uh, Kurosawa movie, uh, Akiru, which is about a, a dying bureaucrat who spends the final days of his life kind of reflecting on things and, and trying to give it meaning. Uh, and the other is the wonderful Ingmar Bergman film, Wild Strawberries, that I know you and I have talked about a lot in the past, maybe even watched together, which is about a, a professor who is uh, on his way to Stockholm to be honored. He's a he's a scientist, I believe. And, you know, his life has accrued all of this baggage. He's kind of lonely. Uh, he's estranged from his family. And in the course of just a day or two uh, on his way to Stockholm, he reflects on his, his entire life and realizes that uh, actually much of it has been uh, tremendously meaningful. Two of my favorite films. Uh, I'd love to talk about those uh, in the future. Yeah, something that Wild Strawberries gets at is that memory, your cat, of memories they're not simply a trunk that you can open and they're all there memories are these things that are constantly all around us and can be triggered in the most unexpected circumstances by just objects and people and sounds and smells and noises that's right and which are interwoven with all kinds of other things it's not like you open up a trunk and you pull something out and the memory is a discrete thing it's more like a strand that you pull and which is then you know wound up with a whole bunch of other strands you know, which together form a tapestry. In many ways, Wild Strawberries is a different film than uh, Uncle Boon Me, but for reasons I can't quite put my finger on, apart from the fact that both are broadly films about memory, it strongly came to mind watching this film. They're both trying to grasp at something ineffable. Finally, I'll just say on Uncle Boon Me that it ends in, a, in another beautifully and powerfully cryptic scene where after Boon Me's funeral, the family is in a hotel room watching TV and the TV perhaps pointedly is playing some sort of military demonstration. The son, for some reason, has become a, a Buddhist monk now and reality splits. The family sees itself watching the TV and they leave the room, leaving themselves behind. 
and I mean kind of the most basic and corny reading you can do of this scene is that is that Apichitpong is suggesting just the the multitude of possibilities that we all have within us, the multitude of lives that we could live. Uh, but you know, maybe maybe there's something profound in in what I just said. I don't know. I actually liked uh, I liked the beginning of this scene, which on the face of it is totally bland. I liked it even more than the end because uh, initially the son comes back from the temple in his robes. And they're saying, you know, you shouldn't be here, you're a man, you should be in the temple. You know, he's kind of breaking the rules. And he says that the thing he wants more than anything is to uh, have a hot shower. And by the time he comes out of the hot shower, you know, he's he's changed into just kind of, you know, street clothes, basically. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of kind of, you know, dualism in this film. And, and this seemed like a pretty obvious example of it, where, you know, this character is both a monk who, you know, is, is spends his time concerned with spiritual matters. And he is really, you know, he is really that person and, and really dedicated to being that person but then he's also a guy that wants to go out to a restaurant and uh, have a bite to eat and listen to the pop song that plays uh, as the movie's ending So, you know, I watched Uncle Boon Me this week because I was in need of some sort of spiritual nourishment. I wanted to watch something that dealt with, you know, life and death and memory and all those, all that good stuff. And, you know, the other thing I've been watching a lot this week um, for, I want to say, comfort is The Three Stooges. (laughs) And, you know, uh, comfort comes in many forms. And I just want to tell you about one gag that made me, uh, well, actually, I'm going to tell you about two gags that made me laugh (laughs) a lot. Uh, it's from a, a short film called A Missed Fortune from 1952, I want to say. Shemp is in it. Uh, it opens with them. Uh, they're eating pancakes, and Shemp puts the syrup on the table next to a jar of glue. And what do you think Mo does? Something about the inevitability of that. The setup is much more funny to me than the payoff, but this, <laughs> just because the payoff is so obvious that the setup, I don't know... <laughs> really makes me laugh and something similar happens to my other favorite gag in the movie they've all come into a fortune and so the, now they're at a really fancy rich person hotel they've all got their suits on they've all got top hats and the butler at the hotel points to something on the dresser and says gentlemen this is a five thousand dollar ming vase that is so funny to me <laughs> <laughs> the the grinding inevitability like you can go home after that joke i don't even need i don't even need to see the vase break which it does <laughs> just the fact that he says that so funny well well past and present are always in conversation with one another <laughs> The vase exists both in its broken state and in its non-broken state. They're mutually complementary and symbiotic. Yeah, and you know, actually, it's true because the second the second he says, "Gentlemen, this is a five thousand dollar Ming vase," it's already broken. I don't even need to see it break. It broke when he said that. 